A lot can be learned from this Packers-Vikings game. Oh, yes. I am fixated on this Packers-Vikings game because in previous seasons, the Packers would have lost that game. You know it. I know it. You see it time and time again. This is how comebacks happen. Packers are up 29-10 heading into the fourth quarter. They're up 29-10. And you would think, oh, they'll just run the ball. No, no. Packers are up 22-10 and 29-10 heading into the fourth quarter on the road. And Aaron Rodgers still threw the ball 44 times. Their leading rusher only rushed 16 times. You never see that in the NFL. You never see that. Typically, a team like the Packers in that situation, they would be running scared in the fourth quarter. Suddenly, they're up 10. Then they're up three. And they're just continuing to run the ball. But no, what do they do? Continued to throw. Kept the pressure on. And that's how you win 43-34 instead of losing 34-33. Another play caller would have lost that game. So maybe we were too quick to judge the Packers' leadership. Now, maybe the front office... Is clueless, and it seems they have no idea what the fuck they're doing, drafting Jordan Love, who's not a first-round caliber quarterback, in the first round, and then A.J. Dillon, who's not a second-round caliber running back in the second round, proceeding to give Jordan Love exactly zero snaps and A.J. Dillon two carries. So, really stockpiled the talent in the draft to help Aaron Rodgers and help the team win games, didn't you, Packers? No, 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 just blew it. Just complete. I mean... In retrospect, that draft looks even more embarrassing. This is a Super Bowl contending team, clearly. And they're drafting as if they're rebuilding. I mean, just look at what Baltimore and Seattle did in the picks immediately after Green Bay selected Jordan Love. Yeah, the Seahawks taking Jordan Brooks. That was a reach. But I was particularly impressed by the Baltimore Ravens selecting Patrick Queen. You could have Patrick Queen, a true playmaker on defense. Or he could have gone with a safety like Xavier McKinney or Antoine Winfield. You sure up the defense at the end of the first round. And then at the end of the second round, Brian Edwards would have been easy. Just take Brian Edwards right there. And it's easy. It would just be so easy. It would have been so simple. And that instead of taking Hosea de Guara, you go Adam Troutman. Imagine that. Can you imagine the Packers to come away with Patrick Queen Brian Edwards and Adam Troutman. They could have had those three players. Instead, they have players that can't help them. Probably ever. But the play callers have other ideas. They said, no, we're not going to blow this franchise up. We are going to try to win. We have Aaron Rodgers. And instead of running the ball in running situations, we're going to call the more efficient plays, which are pass plays, time and time and time again. And I believe this is a signal that NFL coaches are leveraging analytics in play calling more than ever. And you saw that around the NFL. Most of the games hit the over. Now, this is partly because sports books were conservative, thinking, oh, these offenses may not be able to execute at a high level without a preseason. That was wrong. But they were also basing the point total assumptions on play calling the last 10 years. And we are trending into a place where the league becomes not just pass-heavy, but pass-dominant. Where we could see teams throwing the ball 70% of the time. We're going to get there soon. And then in a few years, it'll be 80%. You'll be like, how is this possible? Yeah, because the analytics departments are handing the coaches the expected points added from run plays versus pass plays in every game situation on the board. And the Packers, more than anyone else, were playing the probabilities on Sunday, and it was impressive. 
And we're going to see more and more and more of this. You might say, well, this means you want to invest in wide receivers, right? In fantasy football. And no, that's not the case. That's not the case because not only are teams calling more pass plays, they're calling more plays with three and four wide receiver sets, which is diluting the target distribution aside from a handful of teams. The two teams with the most consolidated target distributions happen to also be playing in that game, the Packers and the Vikings. So you want Devontae Adams and you want Adam Thielen. And in Los Angeles, you want Robert Woods. I mean, these are three wide receivers that will enjoy the highest target shares in the NFL this season. And they also happen to be the wide receivers I want to play in cash games on both FanDuel and DraftKings this week. Now, on FanDuel, you can just play Adams. You don't have to worry about Woods and Thielen. You can just play Adams. You can play a cash game lineup on FanDuel with a running back core of Ezekiel Elliott, Derrick Henry, and Aaron Jones, who gets the Lions at home with Devontae Adams and Tom Brady on top, who's at home to face the Panthers, the ultimate get-right game for Tom Brady. That's with Darius Slayton. That's with Paris Campbell and Logan Thomas and the Washington defense. That lineup stays completely out of the middle. There isn't one skill position player that I listed between 5,500 and 7,500. The middle on FanDuel for skill position players, non-quarterbacks, 5,500 to 7,500. And you can construct lineups that stay completely out of the middle in cash, which is the goal. And you also want upside at wide receiver. You want inexpensive upside. You're not just looking to chase inexpensive targets. You want inexpensive targets with upside. And Darius Slayton and Paris Campbell both run sub 4440s. So you're getting the targets with the explosiveness. That was the case for playing Paris Campbell in all formats last week. And it's the case again in DFS to play Paris Campbell this week at home against Minnesota. Look what Marquez Valdez-Scantling did against Minnesota just last week. And of course, you're playing Logan Thomas in all formats. He's this year's Darren Waller, and he faces Arizona. When you look at the slate and you pull up the tight end player pool, the first thing you look for is who's playing the Cardinals. And it happens to be Logan Thomas. I mean, it's just perfect. It's so perfect. And I love this Elliott Henry Jones running back core because they're all at home with excellent matchups. They're home favorites against weak rushing defenses. And Remember, FanDuel is half PPR. And because of that, Derrick Henry is more attractive. So you can pivot off McCaffrey on FanDuel, where he's priced all the way up to 10.5K. You can come all the way down to Henry, save 2200 and that allows you to get to Adams. So the downgrade from McCaffrey to Henry, given that Henry commanded 100% of running back rushes for the Titans last week, and he was involved in the passing game. Three catches as well. So he's not uninvolved. He's not super involved, but he's not uninvolved. As long as he's somewhat involved at home against the Jaguars, a team that he routinely demolishes, getting an even greater opportunity share this year than he ever has in his entire career with a higher target share than he ever has. Well, well, this is the week. This is the week to play Derrick Henry and Cash on FanDuel. This is the week. And this also is the week to pivot off Christian McCaffrey on FanDuel because Christian McCaffrey is going on the road to one of the NFL's best rush defenses in Tampa. It all makes perfect sense. But if you're going to pivot off a guy like McCaffrey, you need to have an incredibly attractive option that checks all the boxes in order to justify moving down from McCaffrey. That's what's necessary to move down from McCaffrey. And in Devontae Adams, matched up against Detroit this week, he checks all those boxes. 
right? This is your number one receiver in fantasy football. He's this year's Michael Thomas. We talked about it throughout the summer, and we're now realizing why he's this year's Michael Thomas. It's exciting. So you could take zeros with this lineup and still hit the pay line. And the beauty is, even if something happens to one of these running backs, or to Brady, or to Adams, well, a guy like Darius Slayton or a guy like Paris Campbell has boom upside to bail you out. That's the beauty of playing inexpensive boom-bust receivers in cash. But it's also the benefit of playing on FanDuel. FanDuel just gives you more flexibility. Don't have that luxury on DraftKings. On DraftKings, we need to make more compromises. Can't play Tom Brady, right? But you can still play Ezekiel Elliott, Derrick Henry, and Aaron Jones. It is possible. It's less attractive on DraftKings because it's full PPR. So you're not as interested in playing Derrick Henry on DraftKings as you are on FanDuel, but you can do it. You can move down to Gardner Minshew. You play Corey Davis at 4K because Corey Davis was the target leader for his team, and he has a phenomenal wide receiver prospect profile. He's just been snake-bitten throughout his career. Maybe this is the year that Corey Davis puts it all together. A lot of Dynasty Leaguers are still Corey Davis truthers. He's rostered across all Dynasty Leagues for a reason. He was a top-10 pick. He was a dominant college-wide receiver. One of the most prolific college-wide receivers of all time. And he has the size and athleticism of a true alpha. Then he goes out in week one and commands the most targets and is the receiving leader for the Titans. So you have to play him at 4K against Jacksonville. And this is one of those cash hedges. You would never do this in a GPP. You would never play both Corey Davis and Derrick Henry. That's antithetical to a GPP strategy where you're betting on a particular phase of the game being emphasized. So you're betting on Minshew scoring enough points that Tannehill has to throw the ball. So in that scenario, you would play Minshew, you would play Chark, and you would run it back with Corey Davis, but you would not play Derrick Henry. Or on the flip side, you could play Derrick Henry in the Titans defense, thinking they're going to get out to a big lead against the Jaguars, and then Minshew is in comeback mode, and you can still run it back with Chark or Chenault. But in cash games, you're locking up a significant opportunity share across all rushers and receivers on the Titans. You know they're going to score points against Jacksonville. So by playing both Henry and Davis in cash, you monopolize a significant number of those points. Now, it doesn't make sense to do that with A.J. Brown. He's too expensive. It only makes sense if Corey Davis is 4K. And you need Corey Davis to make Elliott and Henry and Jones and Adams fit. That also means you have to go all the way down at defense. You have to play the Jets. Because the Jets are facing the 49ers who have... No skill position players left. George Kittle is going to be questionable. Debo Samuel is on the IR. Brandon Ayuk is questionable. Who's left? It's Kendrick Bourne and it's Trent Taylor. So that's why you play the Jets, but that's also why you can play Trent Taylor. Trent Taylor is the lineup maker on DraftKings. If you play Trent Taylor at 3.3K, that allows you to fit Elliott, Henry, Jones, and Adams. Because I think Trent Taylor will be the target leader in week two against what may be the worst secondary in the league. This is a secondary that just allowed over 300 yards to Josh Allen. And Josh Allen never throws for 300 yards. That's something that Josh Allen can't do. If someone asked me, can Josh Allen throw for 300 yards in a game? I said, I'm say no, no, <laughs> he's not accurate enough. Now he had some hilarious Josh Allen air balls in the red zone because Josh Allen completely melts down in the red zone. That's why he runs for so many touchdowns. Because he panics, scrambles, and is forced to run, and sometimes those runs end up 
and touchdowns. And that's cool. That's what makes him a good fantasy quarterback, right? But that's just one of the many reasons why he rarely posts 300-yard games. In 2018, he threw for, at most, 245 yards. Couldn't even get to 250. And then last year, three games over 250 yards. The most, 266 against Cleveland. So he smashed his single-game passing yards record when he faced the Jets. So you can play Jimmy Garoppolo in DFS. We won't be because we also have access to Minshew and Mitchell Trubisky at an even lower price point. And Mitchell Trubisky's weapons are Allen Robinson and Anthony Miller and Tariq Cohen. And Jimmy Garoppolo has Trent Taylor. So that's why you're going to see a bunch of Jets and Trent Taylor in cash. Would you play Trent Taylor in a GPP? No, never. It's not an upside play. He's a lineup maker. Take a zero on Trent Taylor. You can still hit the pay line easily. But we like him at 3.3K because there's a high probability he's the target leader. And in PPR leagues, that means you can bank 10 points. And that's all you're looking for. If a guy's 3.3K, if he hits 10 points, that's 3X. That's all you're looking for. Just need three times his salary. That's it. Just give me five catches for 50 yards, Trent. And he's very capable of doing that. He has the highest probability of anyone under 4K of giving you 10 points. That's why you play Trent Taylor to make these lineups work. And stay out of the middle in cash. But in GPPs, you play Gardner Minshew with Chark and Chenault. And then you can run it back with Henry and the Titans defense. Because you're betting on scenarios unfolding, not target shares. Care a lot more about target shares in cash than you do in GPPs. In GPPs, you're simply betting on a scenario. And it's easy to imagine a scenario where the Titans get up big, they're running Derrick Henry for 200 yards and three touchdowns, and there's Gardner Minshew scrambling around, throwing the ball up to Chark and LaVisca Chenault and seeing what happens. That's the best illustration of the difference between cash and tournaments is how you would play that Titans-Jaguars game. But I would never play Chark in cash. Happy to play Chenault in cash to get that upside at value. It just so happens that he's a similar price to Paris Campbell, so you likely don't need him. He's in that demilitarized zone between Paris Campbell and Corey Davis, so it's like, I can't really build a case for him. But if you need that extra hundo, you can always move down 0.1K from Campbell to Chenault. And look at the running backs that we're playing. They're running backs that have size, explosive athleticism, receiving skills, especially on DraftKings. Where on DraftKings, we're happy to pivot off Derrick Henry, move up to Christian McCaffrey. But if you do that, you have to move down from either Jones or Elliott to Jonathan Taylor. Yes, Jonathan Taylor is the free square this week. You might be tempted to play Benny Snell, but it's going to be a low-scoring game. The Broncos are suffocating on multiple levels. They are an efficient defense that also slows the game down. I'd prefer to find ways to move up from Snell to Jonathan Taylor in cash. But Snell's not unusable in cash. You just need to build a case for why, where you're going to put those funds to move all the way down. And I can't build a strong enough case. I can build a strong enough case for moving down to Jonathan Taylor to move up to McCaffrey in a full PPR format where he's only 10.0K on DraftKings as opposed to 10.5K on FanDuel, a half PPR format. Either way, you want to play Aaron Jones on DraftKings. Aaron Jones is the type of running back you want to play in DFS, but he's also the type of running back we just wanted to draft. This was our target in the second round, was early second round, Devontae Adams. 
Mid-second round, Julio Jones. Late-second round, Aaron Jones. Those were our targets of the second round in seasonal leagues. Because the players you draft matter. The strategy only works if you draft the right players. You need the right strategy with the right players. Go Robust RB, but you're not drafting James fucking Connor in the third round. You're not doing it. I was called a donkey for drafting Leonard Fournette in the third round. What do you call those drafting James Conner in the third round and many drafting James Conner in the late second? I saw James Conner going in the late second in high stakes leagues and on underdog. Like, what are you doing? What what are you doing? There's not a measurable difference between James Conner and Benny Snell. Well, there is one difference. Benny Snell is a lot more durable. Otherwise, they're the same guy. Whereas Leonard Fournette is a freak. There's no one like Leonard Fournette. There never has been a player that looks like Leonard Fournette with that size and that speed and those receiving skills. That is a rare creature. Whereas James Conner is a commodity. He has a doppelganger in his own backfield. He's not the strongest receiving running back. He's not the most explosive running back. And I argued he wasn't even the best between the tackles. That he was the best at nothing in that backfield. And that's before we factor in the fact that James Conner had the highest probability of being injured and missing games this season, according to player profilers, injury modeling. You go to the James Conner player page on player profilers, scroll down, you'll see he was rated number one in the likelihood of being injured. And then what happened? Week one, injured. Am I celebrating someone being injured? No, I'm celebrating our ability to predict these activities. And I'm happy to mock those that were drafting James Conner over Leonard Fournette, over David Johnson, over Melvin Gordon, chasing the situation, chasing the situation. Whenever the argument starts with the situation, I tune out. I just tune out and I ignore it. I say, no, no. you have to start with the player. I need a player to check the requisite bell cow boxes to be interested in him in the early rounds. That's why... We drafted more Jonathan Taylor in the third round than anyone else because Jonathan Taylor is one of the best runners in the league already at age 21. He's already one of the best, and he has the best screen game quarterback. So he has receiving upside. That's the guy you want. You want to find the bell cows that can be league winners in any given round. In round two, it was Aaron Jones. In round three, it was Jonathan Taylor. In round four, it was Melvin Gordon or David Johnson. Or Leonard Fournette. We're going to see about Leonard Fournette. He's still getting ramped up. Once Leonard Fournette is fully online, I'm interested to see how he looks. There's a lot at stake this week with Leonard Fournette versus Ronald Jones because it's a soft matchup at home against the Panthers. And there's a lot at stake with the Buccaneers' backfield touch distribution. If Ronald Jones hogs all the carries again this week and commands more targets than Leonard Fournette, then he will likely capture the momentum and retain his role as primary back. But if this is the week coming off a loss that Bruce Arians decides, you know what? We need to change some things up. Let's give Leonard Fournette the majority of the carries, more targets out of the backfield. Let's see how he performs. We're going to find out together. (laughs) Either way, Leonard Fournette has a hell of a lot more upside than James Conner ever did. Because Leonard Fournette has size, explosive athleticism, receiving skills, and a multi-year history of production and durability. James Conner is a one-year wonder who is one of the most fragile running backs in the NFL. That's why he was an easy fade. That's why we have 0.0 James Conner on our fantasy teams. He doesn't meet the criteria that we're looking for in a bell cow back. You know who does? Melvin Gordon, 
He has size, explosive athleticism, receiving skills, and a multi-year history of production and durability. So does Fournette. So does Cam. And all and and the rookies like Cam Akers and DeAndre Swift and J.K. Dobbins. They're only missing the history of production. They bring everything else to the table. They're all better bets to be league winners than a running back that looks like James Conner. He's not an electric, he's not a target magnet in the passing game. The only reason he commanded significant targets in 2018 is because Ben Roethlisberger threw the ball more than any other quarterback in the history of the NFL. James Conner is definitively not a strong receiver. He does not have a multi-year history of production, and he's definitively not durable. But I refuse to call those who drafted him or recommended that their subscribers draft him donkeys. You made a mistake. I sat in front of this microphone and explained why touting James Conner was a mistake on a constant loop this summer. For many of the same reasons, drafting Kerryon Johnson was a mistake and Philip Lindsay. Now Philip Lindsay's hurt. Big surprise. Why? Philip Lindsay's 185 pounds. I talked to Davis Maddock about that. He didn't realize. He's like, I didn't know. I thought he was the same size as Austin Eckler. No, he's so much smaller. Philip Lindsay is definitively not durable enough to be a bell cow, even if something happens to Melvin Gordon, who they're paying $8 million a year. So how could you ever justify building a zero RB roster around a Devin Singletary, a Philip Lindsay, and a Karrion Johnson? But these are the rosters I saw built time and time again by the zero RB cult. And now where are they? They're shaking their fists at the sky. Oh, if it wasn't for that Adrian Peterson signing. Oh, if it wasn't for that Philip Lindsay turf toe. It would have been something with Philip Lindsay. He doesn't have the size to be a bell cow. It would have been something. It was going to be something that prevented Kerryon Johnson from being a workhorse because he's not capable of it. They brought in Adrian Peterson because, because Kerryon Johnson is clearly not that guy. It's not unlucky that the Lions signed Adrian Peterson. It's just confirming what we already knew. Kerryon Johnson was just a wasted pick in fantasy football. You could say, oh, well, we're trying to waste picks. It's like the Silicon Valley mantra. Oh, we, we, we're trying to fail. Failing's good. We're trying to waste picks in the draft because then we can drop these guys. We can pick up the next Benny Snell on waivers. Except the problem is because we, the underworld, knew how fragile James Conner is. We were the ones drafting Benny Snell in the final round of every draft. So then when the zero RB cult members go to their free agent list and they type in Snell it's no records found, no players available, and they find, oh, he's actually rostered. Oh, fuck. Something, something Underworld, something, something Podfather. God damn it. Foiled again. Looks like we're going to be 0-2. Maybe when we're 0-2, we'll have a high waiver claim. We'll be able to get the next free square that comes available next week. Then maybe we're 0-3, and at some point, this zero RB roster is going to find a running back, and we'll start <laughs> to log some wins. It's going to happen right? Wrong. Not going to happen. Can't make the playoffs when you're 0-3 against teams that drafted Derrick Henry and Aaron Jones and Jonathan Taylor and David Johnson. It's not going to happen. You're done. You're already done. Go pick up Malcolm Brown. Go ahead and do that. That'll be the best. The zero RB zealot who goes and gets Brown thinking this is the answer. Oh, I got it. Then all of a sudden it flips in week two. Suddenly it's the Cam Akers show. And the robust RB guy is the one with the Cam Akers. And now he has a higher free agent auction budget than the zero RB guy. And he gets the next actual free square running back that comes available. This is just the cycle of life. It's the cycle of life.
where the robust RB eats the zero RB in the survival of the fittest time and time and time and time again in fantasy football. It's too easy. It's just six categories that running backs have to meet. If you meet those categories, we draft you. It's, it's so easy. But do not let this message reach the zero RB cult because we want to keep them in the dark about how to win fantasy football leagues. We need them to continue to tout Karrion Johnson and Philip Lindsay and Devin Singletary. We need them out there doing the good work, right? And then the irony of the Karrion Johnson zero RB drafter bidding big on Adrian Peterson after week one. You can just see it, man. You can see the desperation coming. You can already see it. God, I relish this. And I'm going to keep betting on Paris Campbell on Prediction Strike. That was my big recommendation. Get Paris Campbell on Prediction Strike. Keep pushing the button. Paris Campbell was the receiving leader. Paris Campbell has the explosive upside. Paris Campbell has another soft matchup. Just keep pushing the button on Prediction Strike. Go to Paris Campbell's player page on Player Profiler and click Invest in Paris Campbell on Prediction Strike in the lower right-hand corner. Set up an account using the code UNDERWORLD and you'll get 10 free investment bucks. This makes me so happy to see fantasy gamers scrambling to get to the waiver wire to get the Jarek McKinnons and the Paris Campbells and the Benny Snells, the guys we were drafting in the final rounds. It just makes me I just can't. Just save your money this week. You can save your money. You already have these guys. It's beautiful. So you want to get even more action? Go to Prediction Strike, promo code UNDERWORLD, and shout out to my man Patrick Murphy from Fantasy Football King. If you're 0-1 and you're feeling at all unsure about your prospects for this year in fantasy football, go to fantasyfootballking.com, sign up for a free consultation, and Patrick will guide you to the right waiver wire transactions and start sit decisions in the weeks ahead. Fantasyfootballking.com. Go there, go there now. And now it's time to talk to Ben Gretsch. We go way back. He and I launched the original world famous in quotes draft kit on playerprofiler.com a few years back. We hosted a show together on Roto Grinders, NFL Game Night with Eric McClung, who is now retired from fantasy football. All the best to Eric. So looking forward to talking to my old friend, Ben Gretsch. Be sure to follow him at Yards Per Gretsch on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program. Oh, one of the oldest, best friends of the underworld and the podfather personally. It's Ben Gretsch. And Ben Gretsch did the thing that I've been waiting for someone to do, which is to set up a subscriber-based newsletter. I love newsletters. I'm an email guy. I'm very old, and I prefer email to things like Discord and other. everyone's on you know, 10 different chat apps. I actually like email, and everyone that communicates with me know that I respond well to email. BenGretch.substack.com bengretch.substack.com is where you get stealing signals this year. Go there, subscribe to it. It'll be the best five bucks you spend all year. Ben Gretch, talk to me. What's up, man? I love that intro. Yeah, we got to get the promotion going, man. We got, dude. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I'm off doing my own thing now. Hey, you know, if something needs to get promoted, you call the Podfather. This is where I got to be. <laughs> this is where I got to be. 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm also excited to pot, man. Like uh, I was doing a lot of potting this offseason uh, with CBS, those of you who who listen to the Fantasy Football Today pod. And um, I don't know how much there's an overlap with the, with the Podfathers audience, but there, there's probably some. Well, they're both big podcasts. Right, yeah. A couple of big podcasts. So this is my first uh, first appearance since uh, moving on from CBS, and uh, you know I'll, I'll be still talking with those guys a ton. I wish all those guys well, but I, it is kind of a little bit odd to be to be out of the podcast game for a couple of weeks. But here I am. I love that I'm here with you after week one. This is when stealing signals is at its best. When we've dug into all of this information, and we have you know all these little. These little things that we we should keep an eye on that that aren't showing up in the box score yet, but there's a lot that we can talk about. All right. Give me three. Give me your three biggest high-level takeaways, just trends you're seeing in the NFL that have fantasy ramifications. The biggest thing that was like a theme this week was running back receiving. We know that that unlocks so much upside. Josh Jacobs, there's been big talk about his receiving role. It was much better than it has been. Derrick Henry ran more routes on Monday night than he did in any game all of last year. Um, the switch of Phillip Rivers from the Chargers over to the Colts. Colts running backs caught a combined 17 passes in week one. Meanwhile, the Chargers had fewer high-value touches, which is my own little stat, which combines receptions and any touch inside the 10-yard line. So obviously those, those high-leverage scoring opportunities, they had fewer five in week one than in any game last year. They led the NFL, the Chargers, last year, an average high-value touches per game at 11.2 or 11.3. Their, their season low was six last year. They had five in week one, so that's obviously not great news for Eckler. Mm-hmm. But what backfield – I mean, the, the Colts had 20 in week one for their backfield. So th- there's a lot of positive over there. God, Phillip Rivers might be underrated now. He has such a, a distinguished career as Phillip Rivers. Now he's somehow underrated. Yeah, I – I don't know if I'm going to go that far. <laughs> well, look what he does, man. He's an engine of fantasy production, so you have to give him credit where credit is due there. Now, in terms of individual players, who are you most encouraged by in week one? That guy that went out and just exceeded your expectations. Mark Andrews, we hoped this offseason the role could expand because he was like 10th or 12th or something in, in tight end routes last year. And a lot of that had to do with Hayden Hurst. They rotated three tight ends. They broke uh, camp with only two tight ends on their active roster. They they didn't replace Hayden Hurst with a third one. They just have Andrews and Boyle. Andrews runs a, a really high percentage of his routes out of the slot for a tight end. Hurst did too. Boyle doesn't. So I had this hypothesis. Okay, now Hurst's gone. Andrews is really the only guy that can, to, can run those routes that, that Hurst was running too. And Hurst ran a lot of routes last year for these guys. Week one, Andrews plays his largest snap share since the beginning of 20, I think high, probably of his career. I just looked last year, higher snap share than any any game last year and uh, highest routes per drop back of any game, uh, higher than any game last year. He ran a route on 87% of dropbacks in a blowout, in an absolute blowout. They barely, they only threw 25 times. Andrews is immediately for me, rocket chipping up into the top tight end tier. Yeah, he has a chance to be the tight end one this year. He has a chance to be yeah. the number one tight end in fantasy. And I'm looking back at the game logs from 2018. Mark Andrews never crested a 45% snap share in 2018. So his snap share in week one was by far and away his highest. Give me another player that you were encouraged by beyond Andrews. But I agree with you. Andrews, 
He's trending in the right direction. He's trending towards league-winning tight end, though you just wish you could have got him a little bit later in drafts. You had to pay for Andrews. Paris Campbell, very strong week one role. I'm very excited about him. John Ross is one that I'm pretty stoked about. He played a full-time role, played the most snaps of the Bengals receivers, ran around an 84% of dropbacks. He only saw five targets. He should have had a 35-yard touchdown probably. He got loose once. It was a near miss. But also the Bengals' offensive line struggled with the Chargers' defensive front. Burrow was under a ton of pressure. We saw Burrow's mobility. That was great to see. But Burrow also didn't even throw for 200 yards because he didn't really have a whole lot of time. Uh, You know, rookie, first start. I think there's going to be opportunities more for him to let plays develop down the field. And if Ross is playing this role, and I've been telling people all offseason he was going to play. I love Auden Tate as a talent. T. Higgins is, you know, a rookie, but Ross, they need a speed scheme wise. Zach Taylor needs that in the scheme. And AJ Green has been playing uh, or, or sorry, did did play a pretty solid role. He he ran around on like 66 percent of dropbacks and, and Tyler Boyd's going to be out there. But Ross is the guy that stretches the defense. He was out there so much. I think he could have some splash weeks for sure this year. Poor Auden Tate and complete no show by T. Higgins. So T. Higgins is probably not going to happen this year. And any sleeper appeal of Auden Tate has been extinguished. John Ross, one of those super sleeper waiver wire stashes. No one's looking at John Ross, only 17 yards on two catches, but the five targets, the routes he was running, and the high value routes down the field, it's going to happen when they faced softer secondaries. How about a guy like Traquan Smith? Because I do a waiver-wired show every Tuesday, and I did not mention stashing John Ross, and I did not mention stashing Traquan Smith. Michael Thomas has a high ankle sprain, and we saw what happened when Alvin Kamara and Saquon Barkley and a number of skill position players suffered high ankle sprains last year. They weren't the same for months. Months. So doors open for Traquan Smith in New Orleans, right? Yeah, I mean, played uh, almost two-thirds of the snaps. I haven't really dug into that game yet. That is one that is coming out in the newsletter later today that I haven't gotten to yet. Oh, love that tease. I love uh, Traquan Smith as a talent. We haven't seen a lot of it yet in his career, right? But I I can see that. I want to dig into him a little bit more. I like your optimism. Well, I'm just saying, back of the roster stashes in deep leagues, we're looking at... John Ross, we're looking at Traquan Smith to go even deeper. Guys like Darnell Mooney and Dynasty. Guys that were getting targets quietly, but have speed and explosiveness to deliver splash plays. Who are you most concerned about from week one? I want to throw in Gabriel Davis to that comp- into that group as well. Wait, what? Gabriel Davis? Yeah, he played like 48% of the snaps. He did? Or ran around on 48% of the dropbacks. I can't remember what it was, but he wow. was wait and caught a couple passes, way more involved than I anticipated for week one for the late round rookie. This was supposed to be a red shirt year for Gabriel Davis. Yeah. Yeah. So that was positive to see. Oh, love Gabriel Davis. Yeah. Might not be a big star this year, but definitely somebody that also is a, a back end stash for sure if he's available. The heir apparent to Traquad Smith in Central Florida. They're like similar guys, similar. Yeah, that's very true. Height, weight, athleticism, production. Love it. Most concerned, um, the Dolphins backs. (laughs) Jordan Howard and Matt Breida are both just kind of gone now. Miles Gaskin was the lead back. Howard got all the, 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 I call them green zone touches inside the 10 touches. uh, But that's like all he did. I don't even think he's rosterable. And Breida basically didn't have a role. Uh, He was, he played more snaps than Howard, but didn't really have anything that he could hang his hat on. Um, I was discouraged by the Eagles offensive line. That was a mess. 
Um, I was discouraged by... Well, I'm going to wait and see on the Eagles' offensive line because it could be that they just simply have the best front seven in football in Washington. So I think we need one more week to see what the offensive line really is in Philadelphia. But offensive line quality is fleeting, right? They can't be an elite offensive line forever, especially if you're not backfilling with the right guys. And they thought uh, they thought Andre Dillard was the answer. He's not. So it wouldn't surprise me if their offensive line crumbles throughout the year. But I want to give them one more week to make any kind of judgments because it looks like Washington is just ferocious. It's a team you're going to want to play inexpensively in the month of September in DFS. Yep, I agree with that. Their defense looks really good. Uh, Nick Chubb, obviously another one that you have to be down on. Kareem Hunt basically played the same role and and got the one encouraging thing was he ran a decent number of routes, even though Hunt saw way more targets. I don't think the target disparity was really um, reasonable relative to what their routes were. I believe Chubb might have ran more routes. I got to double check that. But uh, it was at least close. But it basically looks like a 50-50 split, and they're both playing in on all downs as opposed to the more defined roles last year. Yeah, Chubb ran 16 routes. Hunt only ran 13. And Hunt had, I think, like five catches, and Chubb had one or something. So I, it looks to me like they're just going to split it. Like they're going to split it on passing downs, running downs. They're just going to split 50-50, which isn't good for Chubb if you draft them in the second round, obviously. Um and it's probably not also ideal for Hunt that he only ran 13 routes compared to, you know, the five catches he had and the fact that he was so valuable in the passing game late last year. But we'll see kind of that. Like, that's just a, a pretty clear committee right there. And then Eckler, we talked about it. Like, he looked efficient running the ball, but this is not an offense that's going to get him a lot of targets. Unfortunately, I mean, we know Tyrod Taylor threw to LaShawn McCoy a little bit in Buffalo. People talked about that a lot this offseason. Um, his first two years as a starter there, McCoy was in like the 50 target range between 50 and 60 when they had Sammy Watkins and Robert Woods. Then McCoy had the one year where he got up to, uh, I believe the, the seventies. Um, but Eckler had over a hundred last year, he caught 92 balls. I mean, you're not going to get anything like that. And then Joshua Kelly gets three of the, the green zone touches and Eckler only gets one. So now Eckler is taking it on both sides of the high value touch spectrum where he lost some of that that high leverage touchdown equity and lost, you know, certainly lost his high high reception potential. I would expect he'll get more targets than he's been getting. He ran plenty of routes, but uh, or then he saw in week 1 cuz he ran plenty of routes, but man, not a good week 1 for him <laughs> for his value. Important dichotomy to look at Chubb versus Austin Eckler. I'm less concerned about Chubb, more concerned about Austin Eckler. Why? Look at the matchups week one. You have negative game script against a Ravens defense. You can't expect a lot. No one was expecting Nick Chubb to smash in week one. No one was playing him in DFS. It wasn't going to happen for him in week one. Eckler, though, was virtual chalk in DFS. He was top five in ownership. So for him to underperform, especially in those high-value opportunity zones is more concerning because this was supposed to be a smash opportunity, and for him to forfeit that opportunity this early in such an important week for fantasy football, I kind of hate it. I hate what's happening with Austin Eckler, and I'm a little more wait-and-see with Nick Chubb. Yeah, the one thing I will also note on Chubb and Hunt, they both ran for over 5.5 yards per carry. They actually ran really effectively. Um, You know, there's all that. Oh, obviously the passing passing game is far more important for a team's success, but they got absolutely blown out. 
but they ran the ball okay. Let's say, you know, they they have some games where they're going to lead this year. Yeah, there's opportunity for both these backs to have upwards of 80, 100 rushing yards. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe they'll have a lead at some point. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> it did look good in week one. Baker needs to stop trying to throw the ball off the wrong foot. I mean, I'm not even like a mechanics expert, but I know when I watch Baker Mayfield that he needs to clean his shit up. It's year three, bro. Yeah, I expected him to be a lot better this year <laughs> just with <laughs> by not having Freddie Kitchens around. But yeah, man, he did not look good in week one. It, it looked a lot like last year. Hopefully we see him bounce back a little bit because I think Cleveland has a lot of talent around him and could be good if he plays decently. And then that would be great for Chubb and, and Hunt. Both of them could be productive if it's a good enough offense, right? Like we see committees work when the offense generates enough running back fantasy points for for two guys to go around. But you don't like it when the team scores six points. So it's not going to work. And they don't have a slot receiver of any kind of consequence. So that could be Kareem Hunt. And there would be enough, right? You'd have some targets going to Austin Hooper. But if you, most of the action goes to Beckham and Hunt and Landry in the passing game, and they can focus on feeding Chubb with a lead, all four of those skill position players can be productive. They just can't face the Ravens every week. That's not the path to productivity. Now, I think Gardner Minshew is essentially what we wanted from Baker Mayfield. I mean, he looks like a cartoon version of this idea of what we had for Baker Mayfield at his finest, and Gardner Minshew is the one that's actually living out those expectations. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I'm on board with that. I, I love Gardner Minshew. I think it's uh, – you, you can't help but be encouraged by what he did in week one. He showed the mobility. He's still scrambling around. He completed 19 to 20 passes. Dude, 95% completion percentage? Yeah, and you got to expect they're going to throw more in most games. They're going to trail a lot. I mean, they played well in this game. The Colts did not play particularly great, uh, and they won. But are the Jaguars going to win every week? I, yeah, who knows? But what we do know is he he, he also uh, led all passers in in accurate uh, accurate pass attempt. I saw that set float around on Twitter. So like, I think he, 100% of his, his targets were graded accurate. Well, I mean, you complete 19 out of 20. That's That's likely to happen. But yeah, I think he's going to have some games where he throws 35, 40 times and has to scramble. And, and now he has more weapons. LaVisca Chenault looks sweet. Mm. Love him, obviously. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a guy that can easily be a QB1, like a, a lower end QB1 probably. But I don't even know that that's where his ceiling stops. Like he can be very valuable in fantasy. And he's a quiet rusher. Top five in rush attempts last year and still underpriced on both FanDuel and DraftKings. You want to move down? at quarterback because you want to fit in the Derrick Henrys and the Ezekiel Elliott's and the Aaron Joneses and the Christian McCaffrey's. One of the ways to do that, one of the clear paths is to play Gardner Minshew again this week. Now we're talking about Michael Thomas earlier. Someone else is going to be Michael Thomas this year because you can't be the top fantasy wide receiver playing through a high ankle sprain. It's just not going to happen. Is it DeAndre Hopkins or is it going to be Devontae Adams? Who's going to be the number one? I'm not completely off the Michael Thomas bus, but I do. I, I am concerned. You've talked about the high ankle sprain a ton, and you were right last year about uh, Saquon and Kamara. really impacted them. I will take Devontae Adams on this question, though, because, God, he looked oh, yeah. good in week one. Oh, yeah. It was a great matchup, but. But, come on. But there's not much. Yeah, there's not much but. I don't have a but. <laughs> yeah, this guy's amazing. Like, he's going to get a ton of targets. He's going to dominate targets. 
Rodgers probably doesn't throw for that many yards and that many touchdowns every week, but uh, man, whew. <laughs> ben, they were throwing the ball with a double-digit lead in the second half. They were throwing. Yeah. They kept throwing. It, Another team that takes their foot off the gas loses that game 34-33. They just kept going. They just kept yeah. pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing into the fourth quarter, still throwing instead of running. They were the, the proof point for why you just need to keep throwing and help debunk this fallacy that you need to milk clock in the fourth quarter. I thought that the Falcons exposed this fallacy in the Super Bowl, but no. No, we need to keep relearning it, and it seems that the coaching staff in Green Bay, in spite of the decisions that the front office is making, investing in the running game, overdrafting A.J. Dillon, the coaching staff is saying, no, 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 we got this. We, we know what to do. <laughs> and Aaron Rodgers looks back. It was an Aaron Rodgers statement game. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I he had a few statement games last season too, and he didn't scramble at all in this game, but he didn't really need to because he was carving everyone up through the air. But that was a big underrated part of his fantasy value when he was at QB one, elite, elite Aaron Rodgers, uh, you know, self that he was a half decade plus ago. But yeah, he looked really good. I, I'm not sure I'm all the way bought back in on Aaron Rodgers yet, but man, he looked good. Russell Wilson looked good too, and. They decided to throw the ball in the first quarter. Seattle punished Russell Wilson for a decade, finishing last in the league in pass attempts in the first quarter. And then suddenly, it was like a miraculous epiphany struck Brian Schottenheimer. He's like, wait a second, just like what's happening in Green Bay, whoa, wait, we can throw the ball and score more points and win by scoring more points in our competition? That's a way to win? Wait, what? And, I mean, Russ himself came out and talked about this offseason, right? Like, immediately in, at the Super Bowl, he was talking about, we need to be more up-tempo. And in multiple times throughout the offseason, he talked about structuring their offense more like their two-minute drill. And then later, it was structuring their offense more like the fourth quarter. Um, and there was, uh, you know, the, 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 the little bit of buzz about the fact that I believe he's never had an MVP vote, right? Or he's certainly never really been a, a legitimate, like, in the discussion at the end of the season. He has been in-season if he's going to be stat chasing this year, if the Seahawks are actually listening to him and he's like, look, I would like to have a good season finally. Please let me throw the ball so I can do good. That's really notable. That's one of the biggest notes in week one, in my opinion. Um, they yeah. threw more on first and second down in the first three quarters than any team in the league. They were absolutely attacking the entire time. Think about that. Think about what you're saying. Yeah. Going from last to first. In throw rates on first and second down in the first through third quarters. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's the number one trend to note from week one. He goes 31 for 35. He throws for 300 plus. He throws four touchdowns. They look unstoppable offensively rather than the Seahawks getting out to a 7 or 10 or 14 point lead and taking their foot off the gas and letting bad teams back into games and having a one-point win against the Bengals like they did in week one last year or barely beating the Steelers like they did in week two last year, even though Ben Roethlisberger left at halftime and they were like distraught in Pittsburgh. Uh, it, rather than like letting these teams hang around, they did what the Chiefs do, and they put their foot on, on, their, on Atlanta's throat. Yeah. <laughs> they let him cook. They let Russ cook, baby. <laughs> Russell Wilson's cooking alert. They let him cook. Yeah. It was glorious. It was glorious. And Cam Newton looked pretty good. Cam Newton was running plays right out of that 
Tim Tebow Denver Broncos playbook that Josh McDaniels dusted off. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of read option, a lot of running. He runs 15 times for 75 yards and two touchdowns. That's a great, great line for a running back. Uh, and then he completes 15 passes. He didn't throw a TD. He should have. Nikhil Harry fumbled it out of the end zone at the one. On the first drive, Julian Edelman, a very, a very uncharacteristic drop. And he gets sacked on the next play. They have to punt on that first drive. They This was a 21-point performance from the Patriots where they ran the ball a lot where I think a lot of people are going to say this was kind of a boring offense, but it was a hidden 30, 35 point game. You know, again, they fumbled the ball through the end zone for a touchback. That should have at least been a field goal. And that first drive came into a perfect ball to Julian Edelman. And that ended up being kind of a drive killer when they took a sack on the next play. This is a team that I think is going to score points actually, especially when the passing expands, you'd expect them not to throw a lot, right? Cam Newton, first game back, no preseason. Okay, they were a little bit conservative. They're playing the Dolphins. That's going to expand, but they have the read option stuff as well. I mean, this offense is going to be good when it gets going. Juju looks good. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it's very fun. I have a lot of Juju. <laughs> I was buying low. I was buying high in Dynasty in some spots from some smart people that didn't want to give him up, uh, and I drafted him a ton. It was great to see him looking spry, running around, scoring two touchdowns. Uh, Deontay Johnson looked good, too. That team looked good. I mean, you know, James Conner didn't. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though. Deontay Johnson quietly dominated the target share, not Juju. Yeah, in the second half, for sure, Johnson really came alive and started seeing a ton of targets. I'm not really that concerned. I, I think Deontay Johnson's good, too, but I think this team's going to throw plenty. James Conner's now... Who knows what? And and Benny Snell is is their lead back now. So um, I think yeah, their defense is great. But I think we're going to see Roethlisberger throw plenty, and I think there should be there should be plenty of targets for Juju. James Robinson got all the carries, and by all the carries, I mean one hundred percent of the running back carries in Week One. Antonio Gibson twenty five percent. So who do you prefer, James Robinson or Antonio Gibson the rest of the way? Ooh. Uh, I'm going to take Gibson just on pure upside. I actually think there's some really positive notes from the Washington, um, from the Washington play volume in week one last year, they were one of two teams since 2006 to run fewer than 900 plays. The other team was a 2018 Miami dolphins under Adam Gase. They get a new coach in last year. Suddenly the dolphins run basically league average plays. They added over a hundred plays. And what do we see from the dolphins from 2018? No fancy value last year. They had some fantasy value in that offense, right? We saw some Devontae Parker. We saw some stuff. Washington last year, no fantasy value. This year, they run 70 plays in week one. And there was there was value there, but Barber wasn't very good. He did get the two touchdowns. I don't like that Gibson was squeezed for routes by J.D. McKissick and squeezed for green zone touches by Peyton Barber. That's not good. He's getting, you know, getting hit on both sides of that high-value touch thing again. But he did start. He got touches early in the game. They wanted to use him. He is a rookie. It wasn't an encouraging week one, but I think the upside is really high for him long term. The issue with Robinson, who I also like, but the issue is Chris Thompson kind of dominated in the passing game. Robinson ran close to as many routes, but but Thompson's going to be there to take a lot of the targets, which is not great. Uh, but I, I man, I, I still think you you like Robinson. You have to be very encouraged by that. I just think the Gibson upside might be a little bit higher. The three down upside, if if it really materializes, might be a little higher. I prefer the Jaguars offense. I think that they are improving, especially on the offensive line. I think across the board, we saw it in week one. They're getting better. And James Robinson has upside. James Robinson has a 92nd percentile burst score. 
He has that requisite size and the 88th percentile BMI because he's so low to the ground, that low center of gravity. So I love the fact that they went out and named James Robinson the starter like they did with Antonio Gibson, but then they followed through and he dominated all the carries as opposed to defaulting back to Peyton Barber. And I think that J.D. McKissick and Chris Thompson are very similar players. I just prefer the situation that James Robinson is in. And if Peyton Barber were on the Jaguars, I'd probably prefer Antonio Gibson. But really, it comes down to, I think that James Robinson is going to probably score more touchdowns. And I don't see a way in the next couple weeks for Antonio Gibson to break through. And this offense still has low expectations, lower than what we have in Jacksonville. It may be the case that at the end of September, you can either pick Gibson up off waivers or you can trade for him at a lower valuation especially in Dynasty. So I'm not aggressively pursuing Antonio Gibson yet. I'm going to wait and see because I don't think that I'm not afraid of a big breakout next week. Whereas James Robinson getting this opportunity share, he could break out in a big way in any given week. That's a, that's fair. That's very fair. I think Robinson for short term upside is is higher for sure. And Paris Campbell broke out. I was so thankful that Paris Campbell did not score a touchdown so that his total fantasy points still hovering around 13 in PPR leagues. There is a bunch of options on the waiver wire with that fantasy point total. So he might be able to fly under the radar if you're in a league where he wasn't rostered, even though you should have drafted him in the final rounds, but maybe it's a shallow league. I want Paris Campbell. He tied T.Y. Hilton. For team targets he was more efficient with those targets and he has the four three speed so he can take any pass thrown anywhere for a touchdown and this consolidated target distribution that we're now seeing in indianapolis where it's campbell it's hilton it's taylor they were the team leaders in receiving yards in week one all those guys run sub four four forties it's exciting Hines is the other guy he had eight targets he didn't have as many yards as those guys, but he was actually the reception leader. And he also runs a 4-4-40. Also runs a sub-4-4-40, right. Right, right. They all run sub-4-4-40s. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Pittman, you'd be a little bit a little bit concerned about it. Looked like Zach Pascal was playing ahead of him a little. Um, this looks like the core, the rest of the rest of the guys that you just named. And Paris Campbell out of the slot looked very much like Phillip Rivers' replacement for Keenan Allen. I completely agree with your optimism on him. I mean, he, he looked awesome. He was involved early. He was involved in the first and the second down. This wasn't, you know, late game when they were throwing a lot, trying to get back into the game. He was involved a yeah. lot. And T.Y. Hilton was still stretching the field. Well, we only have so many options for second-year breakout wide receivers. Is it going to be J.J. or Sega Whiteside? Probably not. Is it going to be Andy Isabella? Probably not. Then it comes down to, is it going to be Harry or is it going to be Campbell? Advantage Campbell. Yeah. Harry had a decent role as well in week one, but yeah, I would say right now, advantage Campbell. Agreed. Advantage Campbell. Who's going to be this year's Michael Gallup? That's the question. And Michael Gallup was matched up a lot with Jalen Ramsey. It was so funny how we had fantasy gamers fading Amari Cooper because he was going to see a lot of Jalen Ramsey. As if Jalen Ramsey was even good last year, he wasn't. Do you even play profiler.com, bro? Jalen Ramsey wasn't even good last year. I don't care how much money he's making. I believe that based on just his brand equity that he is a good player. And the perception of front offices around the league that he's willing to command that much money. Yes, I think he's good. But 
that doesn't even mean he's going to match up significantly with Amari Cooper. We don't know what their game plan is in Los Angeles. They're not going to tell anybody. They're certainly not going to tell fantasy gamers, right? They don't know. We don't know who's going to match up with who. It was supposed to be Ramsey on Cooper. It ended up being Ramsey on Gallup. So for that reason, I'm not concerned at all with Gallup. In fact, this is a buy low opportunity, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think Dallas didn't look great, but week one on the road, this offense is going to be good. I mean, they're going to be good. I like all their pieces. Yeah. And now Blake Jarwin's, you know, unfortunately, tears his ACL, but that's just more targets. I can't for, believe this with Blake Jarwin. I can't believe this. Just more targets for those three receivers. Yeah, it's just consolidating the target distribution even more, and it raises the ceiling for Ezekiel Elliott. Zeke Elliott. Woo, baby. The question of who's going to be this year's Gallup, though, is really interesting. I think Camp, I mean, Campbell's the slot guy. I, I think his breakout might be like the the Tyler Boyd, you know, year three breakout, right? Like that's that's kind of what I'm expecting right now after seeing week one. And I think Harry is kind of interesting in that in that Gallup question. I mean, Harry definitely looks a lot more like Michael Gallup and plays a similar yeah. style. They're clashers. They're clashers. Yeah. Yeah, it could happen for Harry, man. I hope it does. I really hope it does. I really liked him at Arizona State. Yeah, I mean, six targets, only 19 pass attempts. Pretty good target share. Plays a lot of snaps, runs a lot of routes in week one. He fumbles through the end zone. You know Bill Belichick's not going to like that, but he catches five passes. He's getting used, and we expect this team to throw more than 19 pass attempts going forward. I mean, that was very clearly kind of a week one thing. So I, I was encouraged by Harry. You should be. I am too. Not so much Christian Kirk and not so much the aforementioned Tyler Boyd. Who are you more worried about between Kirk and Boyd? I'll say Kirk. I did not expect DeAndre Hopkins to dominate targets like he did. Um, That was aggressive. But I'm not overly worried about both. I liked both coming in, and I'm still pretty optimistic about both. I mean, Kirk only had one catch, but he saw five targets. He ran a ton of routes. He was very involved. Um, And I don't think Hopkins is going to get a 40% target share every week. I mean, maybe he does, but probably not. Uh, so I think this is a scenario, I, a tough defense as well. You know, the 49ers are not you know, an easy matchup. And Kirk saw a bunch of Richard Sherman. Yeah, right. They just basically sacrificed him to Richard Sherman's side of the field. This is a situation where Kirk is kind of a buy low. Boyd, too, is too, though. I'm less concerned about Boyd. Just didn't see a lot of work. Oh, you think Christian Kirk was like a pawn sacrifice? Yeah. I love that. So Cliff Kingsbury, not only is he handsome, He's a devious genius, this guy. Yeah, and shout out to Rich Rebar on that one. Who you always got to give credit to the stat god, Rich Rebar. But he, I believe, tweeted that 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 that's what Arizona did. So I stole that one from him. But I'm not that concerned about Christian Kirk. I uh, I'm also I'm less concerned about Tyler Boyd though. I mean, I, I think the Bengals are going to be good. They got like I said earlier, so much pressure on them. Burrow made some a couple crazy plays. I don't. It didn't get a lot of circulation, but the shovel pass, I don't know if you saw that. He literally shoveled the ball right to a defensive lineman's chest. It was ugly. It was an ugly, ugly. It was a butt fumble type play. It was real bad. It came out of his hand all awkward. It was ugly. But uh, I think he's going to be good. I just think that he got a lot of pressure. Game one, rookie season, whatever. But I, I think he's going to be good, and I think Boyd's going to be fine. He was very, very involved. I read on Twitter that I should be worried about DJ Moore's target share with the arrival of Robbie Anderson. Now, it's impossible for McCaffrey and Moore to command the same target share if they're going to have Samuel and Anderson more involved. Based on the law of the conservation of targets, something has to give. Yep. 
And a lot of people pointed out he had a higher target share in this game than he did last season. But they threw a ton last year. I expect they'll throw a ton this year, too. But it is true. I mean, Robbie Anderson was getting targets in the shorter and intermediate ranges, not something I expected to see right out of the gate. And, and, and Curtis Samuel was playing closer to the line of scrimmage as well, which we did kind of expect. But last year was just a deep threat and not really all that involved in terms of target share. Tons of air yards and downfield looks. But um, I agree with you. I, my hope, and I was very high on DJ Moore coming into the season, was that Moore and McCaffrey would dominate the targets. Now... I'm not overreacting because DJ Moore was an elite prospect. DJ Moore put up 960 total yards from scrimmage as a rookie, even though he wasn't playing full time until late in the year, like so many rookie receivers do. And then last year, until he got hurt in week 16, a little calf injury that cost him the last two games, he was only six snaps into week 16. His first 14 games, he was pacing for a year two line that if he finishes those two games, he probably would have been a second round pick this year. Um, it would have basically been right on par with Michael Thomas' second season, even though Michael Thomas was two years older and playing with a good quarterback and, and more wasn't. I think Teddy Bridgewater was fine. I just think this is good news for Robbie Anderson, and it's not great news for DJ Moore, but I, I'm also not panicking. I, I had people ask me, if you could sell him at a third-round value where you, where you drafted him, would you do that? And I basically said, it depends. And it would have to be for a player I really liked, and I'm not outright selling. Will Fuller, though completely dominated the passing game target share air yard share it was quite the performance by will fuller but because he didn't score a touchdown still under the radar yep it's a great point touchdowns in week one are super important i mean it's a great point it was a great point earlier it, it is super important will fuller and everyone said oh he only got short and intermediate targets like that was a bad thing i mean not everyone but i saw that comment like oh this is not great he's got a lower a dot well first of all he did see some some downfield looks. His, he was still top uh, 20, I believe, in, in the league. I think he was top 15, maybe, in air yards in week one. Um, they tried to to get down the down the sideline to him a couple of times. Kansas City was rolling a safety over the top. That makes sense. Last year in Kansas City, we talked about this all year, uh, Will Fuller dropped three potential long touchdowns, right? So they, they had that on film. They knew they weren't going to let Will Fuller beat him deep. And he still commanded more than 50% of the team air yards, Ben. Right, right. I mean, think about it. Wait, but he still got there based on short and intermediate targets, but we know the deep looks will be there at some point. Like, he's not suddenly not going to be a deep threat. This didn't change who he is. Uh-oh. He's versatile. Uh-oh. I had a high a high stakes draft Saturday night. I drafted him 4-10. I mean, I moved him all the way up into the fourth round. He was, to me, somebody I was actually willing to go into the fifth round in some drafts for when I re- like receiver heavy drafts, but usually was a sixth round receiver, I think, for most in draft season. I took him at the end of the fourth round. Now, I, I was able to put his week one into my starting lineup, and that was a little bonus too. But I think that's basically what he already is. Like, I think this was a big week one for him, a couple round jump in his value based on draft season right away. We didn't know what level of involvement and focus would the team train on Brandon Cooks. We got to get this Brandon Cooks guy involved. We love this guy. We went and traded for him. He's a total weapon. Even though what you heard in the rumblings behind the scenes is that Oh, the reason we're trading DeAndre Hopkins is we believe that Will Fuller is a proper alpha. And that was a justification coming out of Houston. Like, we have to see how this plays out. You go out and overpay Randall Cobb. Let's see it. Let's see it week one. Then you see it in week one, and you did the smart thing. Not overreacting, but now the information is public on how you're going to deploy your wide receivers, how you're going to prioritize them. So you move up into the fourth round to get Will Fuller. Super savvy move. 
you commented on 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 Brandon Cooks there. That's what we saw from Robbie Anderson. They brought in Robbie Anderson and and they did use him right away. You're right. That could have happened. Now Cooks didn't play a ton because he was kind of questionable coming in with that thigh. And maybe things change when he gets healthier. But there were some key points in that game. There was a fourth down they had to convert late fourth and eight. They ran a quick out to to Will Fuller to get the first. 100% only read Deshaun Watson drops back, looks right at him, and throws a Will Fuller. He's his guy. That they have. A connection. We know that there was a shortened offseason this year. That's the guy that has the continuity with Deshaun Watson. And people point out, hey, you know, he hasn't done that much in his career. He's had a few blow-up games. Okay, first of all, he was injured more in the last couple of seasons. He played more when he was really young, a rookie, and was his his rookie year was his biggest year. And then his second season as well. That's really similar to Keenan Allen is the comparison I, I, I've been drawing where Allen played a lot in first two years and was hurt a lot in year three and four. And then going into year five, everyone's saying he's injury prone and he blows up because he finally stays healthy Oh, because he was ready for age wise. Right now he's 25, 26 years old is going into his prime, but he's been hurt so much in those years leading into his prime that also his full production doesn't look that great. But Will Fuller's good. Will Fuller got Deshaun Kaiser drafted like he was dominant. At Notre Dame. Will Fuller is very good. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, I love these points. You Oh, surface. Love that. Love that. Yeah, he got Deshaun Kaiser drafted. Single-handedly. In the second round. He's good. Yeah, he's great. If he stays healthy, he's going to be good. He's going to be very good. Yeah, we're talking wide receiver one in fantasy football. That's yeah where we think Will Fuller's going to slot in because... He's not only a featured weapon, he's a featured weapon with Deshaun Watson on a team that can't stop anybody. One of the worst defenses in the league. You have the talent plus a situation equals fantasy points, and it's all coming together for Will Fuller. And David Johnson. David Johnson looks back. David Johnson's only 28, right? Just because you're 28 doesn't mean you're dust. We've seen running backs have career years at age 28. It's absolutely happened. So this idea that you need to be 25 years old or younger to be drafted by the cool kids in fantasy football david johnson is disputing that idea and age 29 to 30 has historically been a cliff year for running backs but not age 27 to 28 like be careful moving up the timeline there on the running back especially a guy like david johnson he's not a plotter he's explosive and he's a great receiver he looked good he looked good he looked good i I was not high on him, but he looked good. He looked like the David Johnson of old, and I've drafted him. I had a ton of him last year. I've drafted him pretty much every year looking for that 2016 workload. And the the thing that was so great about 2016 was the way that Bruce Arians would split him out wide so much. He had more air yards that season than anyone else in the in the air yards and, and depth of target era, any other running back. He, he was used as like a receiver, and we didn't see that from him. In tw- like 2017, he gets hurt right away. We didn't see it in 2018 and 2019 when he was playing as much, really, at all. We did see that some in week one. Bill O'Brien actually split him out wide a little bit and and had him out on the outside. He wasn't necessarily running a ton of routes, but that's something I was looking for with David Johnson and I think is a really good sign. If you if you went for David Johnson, I think you ride it out. I'm still worried about his health, but, man, he looked good. Looked good. And they're looking like they're going to use him – you know, the Deshaun Watson running back target shares concern me, but if they're going to split them out, why? You don't have to worry about running back target shares. They're treating him like a receiver. Can you explain something to me? Everyone is excited about Zach Moss because goal line carries, but we know that Josh Allen's going to score the red zone rushes in Buffalo. It's not going to be Zach Moss. It's not going to be Devin Singletary. Devin Singletary gets seven targets. 
one of the league leaders among running backs in targets, and he equaled Zach Moss in carries, but was much more efficient with those carries. Do you think that Devin Singletary could be a buy low? Yeah, it depends on price. Um, I'm. I. It's funny. I, I'm more optimistic than you on Moss because he did see those targets in those green zone touches, and that's the high value touches. I love. He had seven high value touches total, which is uh, what was tied for fourth most in week one. But Singletary had five because he had the receiving work, right? Um, they both saw plenty of, of high value touches and I, I was kind of high on Moss. And then I got asked, well, would I take Moss ahead of Singletary? And I was like, mm, I, if I had to pick, I'd, I'd maybe lean towards Moss, but I think a lot of people probably are already jumping Moss well ahead of Singletary. I think if that's the case, then Singletary's a, a, a buy low probably. Yes. He played more snaps. He ran more routes and he was solid. He was, he was very fine like you you can get you know good rb production out of him i am concerned about the touchdowns but as you noted josh allen's gonna make the touchdowns an issue for any of these backs probably to some degree i like moss and i like singletary i mean i think they're both fine they're good players and they're not fifth round picks right devin singletary never should have been drafted in the fifth round and actually if you rewind to the early best ball drafts in march and april he was going in the third round and then the bills draft Moss and he slides into the fifth round probably should have been a seventh rounder but now you can get him for the equivalent of like a tenth rounder now I'm in yep I don't hate players I never hated Devin Singletary but Devin Singletary is what he is he's small he's slow but he has great feel for the position and he's never going to operate as a true bell cow but he has a role on an offense that if he continues to be active in the passing game he can be a guy that you want to flex on a weekly basis. So he is trending toward being a buy low in Dynasty. That's what I'm thinking with Devin Singletary. What about Jimmy G? Like Baker Mayfield, Jimmy Garoppolo did not look good. And I was particularly concerned by what I perceived to be super sloppy mechanics. Like I was watching him airmail passes. He got George Kittle injured on a short pass. That never should have been thrown as high as it was. He got away with some interceptable passes. And I was just weirded out. I was weirded out because going into that game, I thought this could be fireworks for Jimmy Garoppolo. This is a great matchup. And then he just looked sloppy. Yeah, I didn't love it either. Um, <clears throat> and now you got to be concerned. You know, we knew he like he was without Debo Samuel. You know, Brandon Ayuk, first round pick, not really healthy either. Doesn't play. And now George Kittle gets hurt. Oh. Like, what do you have? They have Trent Taylor and they have Kendrick Bourne. Those are their starting receivers now. Yeah. And 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 that's I like those guys, you know, reasonably enough. Hey, Trent Taylor 3300 on DraftKings. Yeah, he's a solid option actually. Hey, in cash. Hey, hey, you want to make a really attractive lineup everywhere else? You got to use Trent Taylor. But Jimmy G's only big play in the passing game was to his running back, Raheem Mostert on that little angle route. I mean, that was the only If there anyone can drop the plays to create some splash plays out of the backfield. It's going to be Kyle Shanahan. But I love this for Jarek McKinnon. I love the idea of Jarek McKinnon potentially getting 10 targets out of the backfield because there's just nobody else. Like, that's in play. So it's good for Jarek McKinnon. That's about it. It's about it. Yeah, it's not really an ideal spot, and they're playing the Jets. You would expect that this could be like that Bengals game last year where the Niners kind of really put their stamp on the game. I think they ran for over 300 yards. It yeah. wouldn't surprise me. Tevin Coleman didn't really play last week. He should be fresh. Both Mostert and Coleman run for a ton of yards. It would not surprise me if they just kind of take it to the Jets. 
But it's conceivable you play Jimmy Garoppolo and then they just run the ball the entire second half and he doesn't put up the numbers because he doesn't have the weapons. You need a weapon. Like, my theory is just give a guy a weapon. Just give Ryan Tannehill a A.J. Brown and, and he'll produce. But you can't send a quarterback out there with absolutely nothing. Yep. Right? Can't give you anything after the catch. It's going to really affect the total yardage, especially in the touchdown potential, the long touchdown potential. So as much as I'd love to get on board Jimmy Garoppolo against the Jets, because that was the first time Josh Allen's ever thrown for anything close to 300 yards. It was last week against the Jets. Agreed. But you mentioned A.J. Brown. Can we can we just talk about A.J. Brown for a minute? Because there's a lot of Corey Davis optimism right now. And the last, I don't know if it was the last time, but I was on, on the pod right after A.J. Brown's first big game last year. And I remember you asked me at the end for my big rest of season prediction. And it was A.J. Brown's going to be a league winner. It was the A.J. Brown show. We talked about him earlier in the show. We, we, went, all, we went all on A.J. Brown. He wasn't uh, very productive in week one. But I watched that game and I, I, I almost don't understand how he didn't have 25 fantasy points. Like it doesn't make any sense. A.J. Boya goes out. They're giving him 10 yards of cushion. Just throw 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 the quick screen to him. Throw throw it to him quick, like the like Dallas used to with Des Bryant. Let him go make a play, or do it like you know Terrell Owens, any team he used to play for. They like okay, that's that's not what they wanted to do, and and you know that's just what I wanted as a fan. Fine, but also he was getting open a ton. He should have scored at the end of that game. He, Ryan Tannehill would not come off his first read that entire game. It was weird. And Ryan Tannehill was somehow accurate when throwing to Corey Davis, but not when throwing to A.J. Brown. It was just random and unlucky. Right. There was a couple spots where he did go to Brown and it just didn't didn't work. Uh, there was the spot Lewis Riddick highlighted on the broadcast where Brown was running wide open downfield. They kept running Brown downfield and they never tried to send one downfield. Tannehill just kept taking the underneath throws. But the whole idea that like Corey Davis, I mean, I, I don't think anyone actually thinks Corey Davis is, is better than A.J. Brown. But the whole idea that he's going to break out. Look, he went seven for a 101 or something and it was clear number two wide receiver stuff it was running these shallow crosses where they designed the look to him because the defensive attention was elsewhere and he was wide open when they tried to go back to that in the second half on a big down and it was double covered Tannehill still threw it because he was never getting off his first read and got knocked away right away if Corey Davis is going to break out and I I you know I think he's fine but if he's going to break out, he's going to start getting more defensive attention. Nothing we saw on Monday night translates to more defensive attention. And it's not like he put up 250 yards. I just – A.J. Brown is a better player. I don't think that's that crazy. But I also – I just – I like I'm, – I'm having a hard time with this like tons of Corey Davis optimism after this game. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. A.J. Brown also, by the way, got hurt in that game. He looked banged up the whole second half. He was slow to get up. He fell on the football. They were talking about losing his win. He's playing at altitude. First game, no camp, no preseason. Maybe the dude was just a little bit winded late in the game. He had a bad game, dude. Yeah. He had a bad game. He's going to blow up next week. Yeah. Corey Davis is the Malcolm Brown of wide receivers, and he's a trap in free agent auction bidding. Don't overspend on Corey Davis. Just like I'm telling you, and I'm sure Ben would agree, don't overspend on Malcolm Brown. I don't think you overspend on, on an old back with, you know, Daryl Henderson's going to be healthy at some point as well. So yes. we're still talking about three running backs here. But he did look better than, than Cam Akers in week one, unfortunately. I mean, I have some Cam Akers shares. Cam Akers had a bad game too. Yeah. You know what? You had a bad game. But I'll make a bold prediction right now. Malcolm Brown never sees an 80% snap share for the rest of his career in the NFL. 
I don't think that's that bold. <laughs> I think that's probably fair. Some people are like, oh, well, uh, Malcolm Brown's a better bet for the rest of the season than Mark Ingram. Eh, slow down, right? Slow down. I know they both are competing against elite college running back prospects and J.K. Dobbins and Cam Akers, respectively, but I believe we haven't seen the last of Mark Ingram. Yeah, dude, he was like the heart and soul of, he wasn't the heart and soul of their offense last year, but he was, you know, getting up in the postgame press. He's a locker room guy. Like he's going to, he's got some of those intangible things. He's going to get his playing time. He's not going to go away and just disappear. I, I just don't think that will happen. Uh, but the Akers thing, it reminds me a little bit of Miles Sanders last year. Struggled early, took a little while, had to sit behind Jordan Howard for a while, and then was big late. I mean, I, you don't, I don't think you give up on Cam Akers. Late round tight end wins again. TJ Hawkinson, Dallas Goddard, Jonu Smith. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Yes, you're sitting pretty and you're happy if you drafted Mark Andrews, but that's about it. Every other top 10 tight end that went off the board, those picks look like they're going to underperform their ADPs. And you agree with that, right? I mean, do you have any Hawkinson or Goddard? I have a lot of Hawkinson. Uh, he was my favorite late one. I don't. I'm not I'm not going to write off Travis Kelsey yet. I mean, you said every other top 10. Yeah. I'm just saying in the second round, broadly, in early second round I preferred Devontae Adams, mid second round preferred Julio Jones, late second round preferred Aaron Jones. Was never getting any Kelsey because I just can't spend up for the premium tight end in the second round knowing there are guys lurking like a Dallas Goddard, like a TJ Hawkinson that you could argue are not at Travis Kelsey or George Kittle's level, but are at least close. Whereas there's no one close to Aaron Jones in the 10th and 11th round. There's no one close to Julio Jones in the 10th and 11th round. That's the hack at tight end in seasonal league drafts. We talked about this a lot over on the CBS pod and my host, Adam Mazur came up with a, he was calling it great or late because like my, my thing was I, I took Kelsey. I took Kittle. I took Andrews. I even took Ertz in the fifth round when he started falling and Ertz ran more routes than Goddard. I think Ertz is going to be fine, too. They they ran a ton of two tight end sets. Both guys played a ton. Um, but, yeah, Goddard looked great, too. Goddard looked great. We have Goddard ahead of Ertz on our Dynasty rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player rankings. Goddard has been ahead of Ertz all year. This isn't just a one-week thing. Yeah. We've known this was coming. I don't think that was crazy, and that was a big thing that we talked about throughout the offseason. Ertz, to me, was only interesting when he started to fall into the fifth, but – Goddard, you can't put the toothpaste back on the tube is the line I kept using this offseason. He was good last year when they had to. And and so my concern was, okay, even when they go to one tight end sets, do they stop treating Goddard like a pure backup and rotate him in on some of those? Uh, and, and week one, look, they they used a bunch of two tight ends again. Their receivers are all hurt again. But yeah, I think both these guys are, are going to play. Yeah, Goddard is very good too. I liked him as well. Um, but yeah, I agree with your point as far as the rest of the top 10 tight ends. I mean, we didn't see a lot from the Evan Ingrams of the world and, and the Hunter Henry's. How about a Hayden Hurst? How about that? How about that? How about, how about Hayden Hurst giving you nothing when his quarterback throws for 450 yards? I'm not writing him off just yet, but I do agree with you that you can wait. You absolutely can wait. It's very viable. And Hawkinson's probably my most on tight end this year. And that's the one that, Oh, TJ Hawk, baby. He's going to be awesome this year. He didn't necessarily play a full snap share, though. I still think they're ramping him up. Ran routes on only 60% of dropbacks. Yeah. It was a mild concern. They have put bubble wrap around him because they know that they have a sports car at tight end and they're treating him accordingly. That's the same reason why Kenny Gallagher didn't play. They're treating these sports cars with great care and they don't do a lot right in Detroit 
but I think they're doing right by Hawkinson and Galladay. And he's still he's still smashed. So, you know, you hope that he gets healthier, right? He's playing through it. Sometimes that doesn't work out that way, but you hope this snap share and this route share starts to rise and then whew, wheels up, baby. It's more of an indicator of his ceiling than anything else that he can do this without having a full snap share. I know that you've been solely focused on stealing signals. And if you're not subscribing to Ben's email newsletter, then what the fuck are you doing? Get stealing signals now. It's five bucks, people. What are you doing? This is his sole focus. He's not looked at the slate in any kind of depth yet. But I'm just going to throw a couple rapid-fire questions. Do you think it makes any sense to move all the way down to Benny Snell at 4500 on DraftKings when you can get Jonathan Taylor for a little more than 2 k more? It could make some sense if uh, James Conner is out. It would have to be James Conner's out. It is a home game. It's a difficult matchup against the Broncos, but it is at home. Yeah, what I will say is... I'm saying it could make some sense because I want to play Jonathan Taylor a lot more. We have Aaron Jones in a smash spot at home. We have Elliott in a smash spot at home. We have Henry in a smash spot at home. So I don't think this is the week. This is not the week to get cute. If these premium running backs had more difficult matchups or on bye, then I think we could tell the tale where it makes sense to play Benny Snell. I just don't think it makes sense, especially in cash. So I think you can dabble on some Snell to move up at wide receiver in tournaments, but there's no reason to go down that far in cash at running back. If you had to pick three out of these four, knowing McCaffrey is by far and away the most expensive and he's going on the road to the Buccaneers, you have McCaffrey, you have Henry, you have Jones and Elliott all in smash spots. Would you actually get off McCaffrey this week? If I had to pick three, I love, yeah. Yeah. I love Henry this week. Henry actually ran some routes. He's going up against Jacksonville, who he just always destroys. Um, You got to love Henry. I think you got to like Zeke. Now you've got Aaron Jones at home against the Lions. Right. I don't hate that, but that would be the one that maybe I I would get off. But I think like in cash, I'm probably going to play Jonathan Taylor. And then maybe I can get up to McCaffrey. Obviously, you want to play McCaffrey when you can play McCaffrey. It's just a salary issue. Yeah, that's it. I, I think you'll see that playerprofiler.com forward slash optimal dash lineup. I think you're going to see that combination where we have a Henry Jones Elliott cash core, but we also have a lineup with Taylor and Elliott or Taylor and Henry on FanDuel in order to get up to McCaffrey. I think that is the path. Yeah, I like that. That's the nucleus of five running backs that you're going to you're going to mix and match and play with in cash this week. Looking at tournaments, GPPs, is there a particular quarterback wide receiver stack that you're excited about? Yeah, the first thing that jumped out to me was, you know, I talked about Christian Kirk a little earlier. They kind of sacrificed him. He's 4,300 on DraftKings now. I think it's a great spot for Kyler Murray. Yes, Washington's defense might be better than than expected. But they're back at home, Arizona. Washington's got to travel now. They were they were at home. I, I kind of like this 4,300 price tag on Kirk and Murray uh, as well, along with him, obviously. You play out the scenario of what if Washington decides to bracket cover DeAndre Hopkins. They don't really have a, you know, a reliable shadow corner. Maybe they have to bracket Hopkins, and then that leaves Kirk wide open. If Kirk can see man-to-man coverage against Washington's number two corner, then that's the recipe for him to go over 100 yards and score a touchdown. That's what you're looking for. Yeah, 
I mean, Deshaun Jackson uh, in week one led the NFL in air yards. Uh, Jalen Rager was like seventh. The, the Eagles, for as much as they took a bunch of shots and everything, they still took some shots down the field too. And they, you know, Rager had that one long catch. That was his only catch, but he had some plays, uh, or excuse me, Wentz had some plays down the field, um, including to to Dallas Goddard for a long, you know, touchdown. We we saw them be able to attack a little bit down the field with Washington when the protection held up enough. Uh, and I think that would probably figure to be Kirk more. It seemed like he's going to be running more of these downfield routes. Hopkins was catching a lot of passes closer to the line of scrimmage. So hopefully you hit on one or two of those, you know? Go get Christian Kirk and Devin Singletary in both seasonal and dynasty. They're both young. Yep. I think we found some some real buy-low candidates where you could absolutely see a fantasy owner overreacting after week one and saying, you know what, hey, it's not going to happen this year. You know, the Cardinals, they added DeAndre Hopkins. What the fuck was I thinking? Drafting Christian Kirk. Someone bail me out. I'll throw in Devin Singletary to take him off my hands. Done. Get you out of here. Give me a bold prediction for this season. Jonathan Taylor finishes RB3. Jonathan Taylor finishes RB3. That's the show. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. It was an ugly, ugly. It was a butt fumble type play. It was real bad. Do you even play your profiler.com, bro? They let him cook. They let Russ cook, baby. <laughs> Russell Wells is cooking alert. They let him cook. They let him cook. Malcolm Brown never sees an 80% snap share for the rest of his career in the NFL. I don't think that's that bold. <laughs> I think that's probably fair. Wheels up, baby. Oh, TJ Hawk, baby. He's going to be awesome this year. Eat shit, Nate Liss! <laughs>